0: digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our guest today is Harry Travis, the president of the Travis Group, a former senior vice president at CVS Caremark and a pharmacist. You can follow Harry at twitter.com slash HJTravis. Welcome, Harry. Hi, Steve. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Uh, Looking forward to this. That's great. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Today's topic is who wins the digital pharmacy? Looking at how technologists are stealing the next generation pharmacy from pharmacists. First off, here's the format for this investor talk. We'll talk for about an hour After that, I'll be taking call-ins from our audience. In order to do more than just watch, you need to register an account on call-in. To register, uh, you can access call-in at callin.com, that's C-A-L-L-I-N.com, or through the call-in social podcasting app in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to clubhouse rooms and Twitter spaces for a modern social audio experience. You can also email questions to me at steven at WardellAdvisorsLLC.com. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat or press the website's call-in button to indicate that you want to speak up and join the discussion. So moving on to some of our topics, um, the stock market has been moving sideways for the last six months and continues a bearish month. Uh, The IPO window continues to be closed for digital health companies the public markets are risk-off not liking earnings-negative digital health public companies. And, and public digital health companies are, tend to be trading very much below their historic highs. In private markets, digital health investors continue to mostly sit on the sidelines, waiting for public markets to find the bottom of pricing. While, and while some fundraising deals are getting done, especially for earlier-stage companies, Later stage companies are finding private investors uh, to be mostly sitting on their hands right now. Investors are expecting the Fed to raise rates again on March 22nd by about 25 basis points. We in digital health are looking especially closely at this because any rate raise could cause markets to pull in further, especially for growth stocks, which in turn could signal a bottom and could cause venture investors to actually get off the sidelines and start investing again. Um, uh, so uh, uh, Harry, any any thoughts about you on the current macro outlook and what it means for young digital health companies?
1: Well, while you're looking at the Fed, uh, I'm watching the FTC uh, and their ongoing inquiry into the workings of the PBM industry or prescription benefit management industry for those of you haven't got that acronym. Uh, if the FTC commissioner, Lena Kahn, uh, survives all of the attacks from the conservative side, you know she and her posse are gonna create a little havoc for the PBM industry. So I, that's, you know, from a macro standpoint, maybe not macroeconomic,
0: macro regulatory,
1: that, that's a big deal right
0: now. So some possible future headwinds for PBMs. That's um, yep. great, so by the way, um, I'm just noticing for the first time, Harry, that there was some uh, perhaps microphone problems on your side I could hear, but I heard static as well. Um, maybe people in our audience that could be unique to me or it could be our audience. Maybe people in the audience could type in the room chat, whether they're hearing it as well. And if we hear yeah. other people say it in the room chat, Harry, I, I don't know if you have the ability to switch between my, uh, multiple microphones, um, but, but uh, it might make sense to switch to a second one if you do. Um, okay. So uh, well, we'll, we'll, I'll keep touching base with you about that. Um,
1: OK. All right.
0: So um, let's see. So that, that's great. So that now the next topic after macro outlook is just news of the week. So for this week, I want to talk about a couple of digital health deals that uh, are very important, actually, to the sector. So the first is that Transcarent announced that it's buying ninety eight point six. Uh, an article in Mobi Health News, citing Forbes, said the value was over a hundred million dollars. Um, this was this deal was announced on Monday. So, um, Transcarent—that's the Glenn Tullman company. So Glenn Tullman did all scripts, uh, and Wall Street loved him, and investors loved him. And then he did Livongo, and he managed to sell Livongo at a very high price, perhaps at the top of the market, to Teladoc. Um, and now he started Transcarent, and the and so. Entrepreneurs and investors are watching him. They think he's got a bit of a magic touch. They'd like to know what his plans are, what he's doing. He seems to be playing around in the uh, employer benefits sector and also the the payer um, health plan programmatic uh, benefits uh, sector as well. Uh, And so he's started Transparent, That's a digital health benefits platform focused on the self-insured employer market. so he's, he's back at it. Uh, TransCarent is backed by Lee Shapiro over at Sevenwire, who's Glenn's friend. Um, and uh, 98.6 is an AI enabled on demand text based primary care app uh, purchased by um, by TransCarent. And I think I saw that it's raised more than 100 million in funding. So there may be an element of downround here, but they never make it easy to figure that out. Uh, but the market is also. Uh, Valuations are are really down compared to when 98.6 last raised funding. Um, So to me, the fact that Transcarent is doing deals, buying companies in this sector, it signals that the employer budget is still a strong budget. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to play. Um, It's also signs of roll-up activity. I think that in that budget area, we're going to see increasing signs of a roll-up. There's a lot of players who can do roll-ups. Teladoc's going to do a Um, uh, roll-up. And, uh, uh, you know, we're going to see other companies do roll-ups, perhaps even some IPOs coming out of there uh, to power those roll-ups when uh, the IPO window opens again. Um, So uh, signs of a roll-up, signs of... Consolidation. I think that sector is ripe for consolidation. We've seen some consolidation. I think we'll see more consolidation. I don't know if we're going to see all of the frenzy of consolidation that the CEOs in that sector want to have happen, but I think this is a, a it's a good sign. Um, and also, I'm intrigued. Uh, you know, I've, we just haven't seen a lot of validation of what I'll call the text and chat bot based. Primary care sector, but this is it. This is a very savvy guy spending real money on a text and chatbot-based primary care, uh, you know, company, um, and so that, that's intriguing validation in that sort of asynchronous text-based world. So, Harry, any, any thoughts about the deal?
1: I don't have any thoughts on that particular deal. I recognize the fact that. In the primary care space, there's a lot going on. Both Walgreens and CVS are making major acquisitions in primary care providers. Walgreens and Village MD, CVS and Signify, Carbon Health, and Oak Street Health. And what I'm watching is how will the role of community pharmacists, particularly the ones in Walgreens and CVS, be affected by all the capital that's been Pushed into and flowing into primary care, maybe at the expense of innovative models inside of the pharmacy. So, still early goings, but there is a lot of capital moving into primary care from the pharmacy companies.
0: And we're we're hearing some feedback that there's a little static uh, on your audio. So I don't know if you can change um, uh, if you can change uh, microphones or not. It, it's what? it's not terrible. We can we can we can live with it uh, if there's no ability to change microphones. So, very interesting. So then the next one is uh, Best Buy, uh, the retail giant, has been getting into digital health of all things, um, and it announced it's partnering with Atrium Health, a provider organization based in North Carolina, to offer a hospital at home ex- uh, uh, services. So, this is an interesting. It's a, it's an additional move by Best Buy into digital health. Um, uh, and it's a combination of consumer digital health, which is where it makes sense for Best Buy to play, with being a provider of telehealth. Um, uh, and um, so, and then uh, so that that's intriguing. I think we we should watch Best Buy. It's one of the most exciting things going on in the consumer digital health space. Um, and I think I, I read that on the earnings call, um, that they mentioned there will be synergies with Geek Squad. Uh, so if you can imagine Best Buy already has cars going to people's homes, and maybe they buy, um, you know, uh, remote monitoring equipment or consumer digital health products that are important to their health, and they break, and they need someone to come to their home and look at their home setup and fix it in their home. And Best Buy already has, uh, you know, uh, Uh, already has the the geeks in Geek Squad driving to their home. So very interesting. I would not have thought of that synergy. Harry, any thoughts on that?
1: If you see a Geek Squad car pull up and the guy gets out in surgical scrubs, you know, I don't
0: know, but it could happen. Uh, Replacing the battery on your pacemaker or something. Yeah. Um, So uh, so that's... uh, And then, uh, Harry, any news from you for the week? Uh, The... uh, Other than the Walgreens
1: uh, one, you're going to talk about uh, meetings coming up. I've got a thought on some
0: meetings, but I'll let you lead in with your uh, thoughts on conferences. Well, that's great. So then, um, so upcoming conferences. I'm going to look at conferences from the perspective of the digital health CEO should you go to a conference should you spend the money so the first conference coming up is south by southwest health and medtech conference this is the first four days of south by southwest in austin march 10th to 13th two thousand dollar ticket so here this is really interesting south by southwest has been trying for on the order of seven years to get into the market for digital health and medtech and they've chosen their specific area to be Medtech, although di- other digital health CEOs also go there, and they've never really become a consensus place. I think for medtech people to go, um, I've been, I've done meetings. Uh, it's hard to know who's going, who's not going. Um, it's hard to to get meetings. So, from the perspective of the digital health CEO, they want to meet with possible customers, partners, and investors. You'll definitely find Austin's investors, uh, you know, there, you know, present in the neighborhood. You'll find, you know, a mix of some uh, VC investors there um, uh, and but it'll be hard to know in advance who will be there, who won't be there. In terms of partners, you'll find some, you know, help, you know, large healthcare companies uh, will be there. They, they often won't have the right people there. It's, it's not like manning a booth at HIMSS where you know in advance who you're going to meet there. So it's a really mixed bag. It's a fun event to go to, um, uh, uh, but it's a, it, it's, it's a very mixed bag. You can't really count on getting your, dollar, your dollars worth it there unless your goal was to meet Austin's uh, VCs. So uh, Harry, any thoughts on South by Southwest? Uh, I've never been there.
1: The closest thing I've been to South by Southwest is the Vibe conference or the HLTH conference in Vegas, which clearly had a South by Southwest kind of vibe
0: to it. Yeah, The the health conference, that is JP Morgan and South by Southwest and Burning Man, uh, for health all, all combined. And Uh, a little bit of CES, throw some consumer electronics show in there too. Yep. And, uh, and it, it's strongest actually, the health conference in November in Vegas, that is strongest in VC investors actually from the perspective of the CEO. Um, uh, you can definitely get all your VC meetings done. The uh, Digital health VCs reliably go there. And it's, it's much less certain if you can actually meet with large companies to sell to them or partner to them, whether they have key people there or not. Uh, of course, it's a young conference is still building up its capabilities It's still trying to get stronger uh, in that area. So the next is actually the Vive conference. So Vive is being put on both by the Health Organization and also by Chime. Uh, and uh, it's in Nashville, end of March, March 26th through 29th, Twenty six hundred dollars a ticket. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it, it is a rebirth of Chime. Uh, and, and they're stressing that this is it's going to be a lot like health, which was a home run for meeting with investors but it's really focused on healthcare services. So if you are a digital health CEO who's focused on selling into healthcare services, um, like especially provide, large provider organizations, and Nashville is known for, uh, for large provider organizations, among other things, um, you know, th- this is a place to go meet with those investors, meet with some of the large healthcare services organizations, buyers and partners. Um, but that's what you could expect uh, from Vive, and, and I'll be at Vive. Uh, and Harry, any, any thoughts on Vive?
1: None on Vive, it's a smaller version of HLTH, but coming up is a very big conference for specialty pharmacy. And I'll talk about specialty pharmacy in my comments in a minute here, but if you're interested in the specialty pharmacy sector or what's driving 50% of the dollars in the prescription market, 50% of the dollars in the prescription market, the Assembia Specialty Pharmacy Summit which those of us in the industry refer to as the spring prom for specialty pharmacy is held at the Wynn uh, Wynn and the Encore casinos in Vegas first week of May. And that's Assembia, A-S-E-M-B-I-A, Assembia Summit. You can find it pretty easily. And if you want to know more about it, go to my LinkedIn page. I have two posts, what to do and how to manage the, the Assembia Summit. Because it's, it's a big meeting and it can be overwhelming, but it's a lot of fun and can be really educational, great networking event. How's my audio? Or do you want me to switch to
0: my AirPods? Um, so uh, it, it might be worth trying because uh, it there's a small amount of static and it also seems lower volume. And if you switch to AirPods um, in Boston on Thursday, March 16th at Pagu Market in Cambridge, that's P-A-G-U Market. Um, it's about a 15-minute walk from Kendall Square T-Stop. Um, we're joined by guest of honor Jonathan Sheffy who is Google Cloud's healthcare lead, and he'll be talking about solving pharma data overwhelm. So if you'd like to join us, visit my Eventbrite page at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com and sign up. I'll be at Vive in Nashville this year. I'll be doing a show live from Vive and a report on breaking news from the conference. My show will be on Monday, March 27th. Uh, we'll have a guest a guest on the show, Grady Hanna, who's the CEO of Nightwear, the sleep prescription digital therapeutics company. And on the rest of the show, we'll be talking about reimbursement for prescription digital therapeutics. Um, for the audience, if you'd like to meet at Vive in Nashville that week, send me an email. If I hear from enough of you, um, not only will we meet, but I'll also put together a drinks night uh, where we'll talk about what's really going on at the conference. Um, uh, next, uh, I'll be in New York the week of April 4th. I'll be doing a live show from New York on Wednesday, April 5th at 4 p.m. The show will be with longtime digital health venture capitalist Andy Geese, uh, the founder of Health Tech Capital, on the topic of building a scalable health tech company. Um, later that day in New York at 5.30, I'll be hosting a drinks night at the Hyatt Grand Central. Um, if you'd like to join, visit stevenwardell.eventbrite.com or send me an email. Um, uh, and Harry, do you have any any um, uh, any content you've put up or personal appearances? let see. That that wasn't um, the FDA saying that. That was some commentators saying that. So I think we'll start to see um, uh, some. Um, uh, you know, we'll start to see uh, growing calls for. Um, for the use of GPT-3 in medicine to be treated as software as a medical device, for example. Um, So one kind of artificial intelligence is machine learning. Um, And uh, there's also, um, there's visual machine learning. Uh, And so this I think is the most slam dunk case for for artificial intelligence. Um, And this is used in diagnosis and pathology and radiology and other areas. Um, uh, And uh, uh, let's see. So Harry just messages that he is he's getting back in Um, and uh, uh, so uh, in with pathology uh, you can use uh, artificial intelligence to uh, view many more uh, look at many more cells uh, view many more slides of cells uh, than a human could without getting tired and provide a better diagnosis. Hey Harry it looks like like we've got you back. Um, Can you hear us. um so um, we have a comment from our audience uh, Yash is saying um, also upcoming rule on ACNU for new approval pathway with AI based triage very interesting um, uh, and uh, also FDA already regulates AIML with software as a medical device yes thank you um, and so um, another kind of artificial intelligence is just... Um, uh decision trees so that that, that's been around for a very long time i think we'll continue to see um, artificial intelligence used uh, as decision trees um uh and uh uh, so um uh, and that it it can be used for diagnosis and and literally that's what physicians do physicians use decision trees in diagnosis um, and artificial intelligence can use decision trees and then there's large language models and it's not clear to me right now why you would use a large language model for diagnosis. Let's say instead of just using a decision tree. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so, um, uh, uh, and so, I think we, we may see people continuing to use uh, decision trees in diagnosis um, as a form of artificial intelligence. Um, So then there's large language models. I think you, intriguingly, you could actually see large language models used in what I'll call talk therapy. Um, uh, So, uh, could you have a large language model specifically built to emulate um, a certain school of thought in talk therapy? I think you could. That would take advantage of the strengths of large language models. Say? Hello, Tad. Can you hear? I think we can hear you now. Oh, boy. Yep, I can hear you.
1: I uh, challenges <laughs> of doing this on the fly. Okay. My apologies to everybody and appreciate your patience. Coming up. I'll be at the assembly meeting in Vegas and would love to meet anybody there. Uh, the way to find me is on LinkedIn, Harry Travis LinkedIn uh, is probably the primary way to link with me there and send me a message. Uh, that's a four day conference. There's plenty of opportunity for networking and it'd be fun to meet people.
0: That's great. So, um, and then industry reports, have any reports come out that you're watching with findings? Um, I usually like to look at Rock Health reports and there haven't been any of those recently, um, at least in the last week. Um, but any that, you, that have come out that you've noticed, Harry, that you wanna call attention to?
1: The most interesting report that's just come out is anybody in this industry should be following uh, Adam Fine at drugchannels.net. Uh, and he publishes an annual, a big report on the pharmacy and PBM industry that is kind of like the industry standard for market share statistic, market trends for retail pharmacy and PBM. So shout out to Adam Fine at drugchannels.net. And you can see that report that's up there that you can purchase and get on his, his blog list his, and for all of his posts. He's very timely and very good.
0: That's great. So uh, thank you. So Harry, um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? So you um, have been in in the business of pharmacy and you were also trained as a pharmacist and you've also run a pharmacy tech company uh, and you have been a senior executive at the big uh, at the big pharma companies. Can you give us a little bit of your background?
1: Yeah, I joke about it that I'm a recovering pharmacist. I'm in step 10 of the 12-step program and never have been able to get completely out of it. But trained as a pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh. I practiced pharmacy in D.C. and people's drug stores a long time ago. Uh, went then to the University of Virginia Darden School to get an MBA and took my career through kind of corporate health care at back, long stints at Baxter Cardinal. Credo Health, one of the early specialty pharmacies. We were acquired by Medco when Medco was one of the big big PBMs. And then that took me kind of, I I decided not to stay on with that team, jumped out and got recruited into Aetna, ran Aetna specialty pharmacy and mail order operations. I did a digital startup in the world of digital adherence and then recently was recruited into Caremark where my last job was senior vice president at Caremark on the member side, running all of their mail order, specialty pharmacy and customer service operations. We reorganized in the spring, summer of 22, that gave me an opportunity to get out on my own. And I'm now running my own consultancy and kind of thought leadership
0: organization with a little bit of coaching on the side. Great, wonderful. so to sort of set the stage, there's a lot going on in pharmacy right now. You know, Americans uh, love the idea of a corner pharmacy with pharmacists who know their name and who they can ask about uh, the drugs. And, and, uh, but this is all under attack from every direction. Uh, so um, you know, chains are, are gobbling up the little pharmacies uh, and that's turning the pharmacist into a mid-level, um, you know, a, a skilled professional instead of an owner. Um, And uh, also tech companies, everyone from Amazon to startups like Hims and Herds are going after our cherry picking what pharmacists do, taking away some of their, their key business, sort of like the way that Craigslist took the classifieds away from newspapers. Um, What's going on in pharmacy? So in, in order to, and again, thanks for the
1: opportunity. uh, And Appreciate everybody's patience with the technical issues here. So we're going to be stable and get through this. We're not going to try to change anything. In order to understand what's going on in the U.S. market for retail pharmacies, uh, also known as drugstores, you need to have an understanding of the U.S. prescription drug market because the drug stores exist to dispense prescription drugs. And there are fundamental changes that are going on in the prescription drug market. And as they play out, they'll have dramatic effect on the distribution channel, the primary distribution channel, which is the drug stores. So I'm going to give you a few market numbers. So get your keyboards ready, get your styluses ready, or your old school pens and, and notebooks ready. I'm going to fire a couple market statistics at you. There are over 60,000 drugstores in the United States, 60,000, 75% of them are controlled by about 12 big names that you know, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Walmart, Kroger, Safeway. The big insurers also have very large mail order pharmacy operations that kind of roll roll up into that count as well. And there are also 15,000 independent or small regional chains in the United States. Companies like Wegmans in upstate New York, or Hearted Drug in Iowa, or Thrifty White in the upper Midwest. They might have 50 stores. And then there's 10,000 mom and pop pharmacies out there. The number of, ins- of independents, 15,000, coincidentally, is the same number as the number of Starbucks in the United States. So there's just as many just independent pharmacies as there are Starbucks. And the 60,000 number is greater than, the total number of pharmacies is greater than the total of McDonald's, Subway, and Wendy's. So it is a big retail market. Uh, as I said, pharmacies exist to dispense drugs. prescription. Let's examine kind of the prescription drug market at a, at a real high level. There are approximately 6 billion, with a B, 6 billion prescriptions dispensed in the United States if you normalize that data to a 30-day supply. I realize a lot of people get a 90-day supply, but we like to think of the market in terms of a 30-day supply of medication. If you count that as one prescription, there were 6 billion of those dispensed last year at about $500 billion in, in retail value. Okay, Now, don't go and calculate the take the six billion and divide that into five hundred five hundred billion to get an eighty three dollar average prescription. It's a really interesting market the way it breaks down. Uh, it was not uh, too long ago, say late nineteen nineties, that most drugstores carried almost any drug that a physician prescribed. So you could go in any drugstore, pretty much no matter what drug you were on, and you could get it either that day or the next day with a, a shipment in from Cardinal McKesson or Amerisource Bergen, the, the big wholesalers. And those drugs could be broken down into one of two categories. It was it was real simple. The drug was either a generic drug or it was a brand drug. And everybody knew what a generic was and what a brand was. That is now changing. Uh, and I predict that this is going to have dramatic effect on the nature and the organization of how the retail drugstore sector is organized. So let's go back to the six billion prescriptions. Today, you can categorize them into four categories, not just two, four. Some people have even created eight. We're just gonna keep it at at four for this. So we got six billion prescriptions, we have $500 billion. And the market is now divided into four categories, generic, brand, specialty, and the most exciting new category, which is gene therapy. Sometimes referred to as cell and gene therapy, but we'll just use gene therapies. So generic, brand, specialty, and gene therapy. Generic drugs, everybody kind of knows what a generic drug is. They make up 90% of the prescriptions of that vast activity 90% of those prescriptions are generic. These are drugs like atorvastatin, metformin, metoprolol for blood pressure, diabetes, uh, high cholesterol, chronic meds. 5 billion prescriptions in that category. The vast majority of those drugs are really cheap. Their cost is generally below $30 for a one-month supply. Okay, Very high volume. So this is what is driving... Mark Cuban, and hang on one second, I just had, this is what's driving Mark Cuban and Amazon into this market, this high volume, low transaction, uh, trying to get a piece of this market. And we'll dig into this further, I'm sure, in the discussion. This category, while comprising most of the prescription activity, represents only 15% of the revenue low dollar volume, high activity. Brand drugs are obvious. So let's talk about brand. Obviously, brand drugs are still a patent protection. We know them by their brand name. They cost approximately 100 to maybe $500 a month. Those are drugs like Zoralto and Eliquis for atrial fibrillation or Trilogy you see advertised for COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This category represents maybe 8% of the prescriptions, a relatively small percent of the prescriptions, 8, but about 35% of the dollars because they're higher volume. These drugs are migrating out of the independent pharmacies into the chains because the PBMs put such a low reimbursement on them for the pharmacy. The pharmacy has a narrow, narrow margin when it's dispensing a brand drug. So you're seeing more independents saying, I'm not dispensing the brand. Okay. We'll talk more about that. The third category is technically within a brand category. These are drugs that still have patent protection, but they're so different that they deserve their own class and they're known as specialty. The And you see a lot of ads for these drugs on TV. These are Humira, Skyrizi, Otesla, Rinvoke, tremphia, for a lot of the autoimmune disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, things like that, serious forms of psoriasis. They cost approximately $5,000 per month, $60,000 a year. And these are chronic therapies. You're generally on these for life. And here's the most important statistic about this class. Specialty drugs represent 2% of the prescriptions. A very small slice of the prescription pie, but 50% of the dollars. It is the classic case of the tail wagging the dog. Uh, A very small tail wagging the dog. And the big dog is payers, the government, PBMs, insurance companies, employers. When patients end up on these drugs, it's blowing everybody's budget up. And finally, the fourth category is cell and gene therapy, and we're in the very early stages of this, but it's real exciting. And this is all coming as a result of the explosion of technologies coming out of the the Human Genome Project and our ability now to identify the, the gene aberrations that cause disease. There are five therapies that have been approved by the FDA. Most of them are in rare diseases, and the latest is a cure for a rare form of hemophilia. Uh, it will cost three point five million dollars for a drug called Hemgenix by a drug company called CSL Behring. Uh, it's a single dose, and you're cured of hemophilia B. Uh, you, you know these patients used to be on about seven hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of blood factor a year. Now three point five million dollars, and, and they're cured. And everyone's thinking, okay, this is a rare. It's a very rare form of hemophilia. But as these drugs come out for broader populations, they could be big budget busters. So on top of all of this, we have got rapid advances in robotics, artificial intelligence, and very powerful mobile technologies. So companies like intelligent automation is practically eliminating the need for a pharmacist to take a big bottle of pills and pour it into a small bottle of pills. That activity is going to go away. A company like arene is an AI company that's got an algorithm that can detect drug-drug interactions and match that up with your lab value in like a nanosecond. So they're going to take a lot of the cognitive functions or be an adjunct to the cognitive functions of the pharmacy. And then you have a company like AspenRx Health, which is like Uber for pharmacists that allows pharmacists to be gig workers, and you can now have a pharmacist in your pocket uh, at your beck and call, or they can be calling you to consult with you on on your medication adherence, because there are 10,000 people turning 65 every day now, and the average person who is 65 is on at least three medications. So with all of that, I got a couple of predictions for us to kind of kick around. One the 15,000 independent pharmacies are going to be under even more increasing profit pressure, margin pressure, and they're going to have to get real creative to kind of hang in there. It's going to be very Darwinian for those folks. Uh, they're going to try medica- medical at home, long-term care, adherence programs, things like that. Two, the size and the scale of the generic opportunity is still, is going to put pressure on the market. So Amazon just announced what I call their $5 a month all-you-can-eat generic club. So for $5, you can get as many generic prescriptions as you want on on this list. Uh, And the third, the PBM industry, as I said earlier, which processes all of these transactions is under kind of unprecedented pressure from both the states as well as the feds. So don't be surprised to see that business model start to fray at the edges with cash only, with different kind of discount cards, different kind of models going on as there's just more and more pressure on the cost of drugs going up and up. So those are my, that's the quick overview of the market and my quick uh, three predictions. So back back to you and take it anywhere you want or the audience can chime in when you're ready to take
0: it away. That That's great. And so by the way, these, these technologists who are bursting on the scene, oftentimes uh, with the help of their own pharmacists they've hired. Um, uh, do you see them? So, just to pick one example, the there's far, there's uh, pharmacies that um, will sell only a handful of drugs, and they'll do it uh, by you know by by marketing to the con- directly to the consumer nationally. Um, Hims and Hers is an example of this, uh, and, and Roman. Yep. Um, and you know, d- was that brilliant? Or are we going to? Are they going to go from success to success, or or are they at the expense of the chains and the local pharmacist, uh, or are, 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 is that going to run into a problem?
1: I do think there will be winners in that space. Uh, there did seem to be. Uh, maybe four or five years ago, just a gold rush of money pouring into these tech-enabled or digital pharmacies. And there seemed to be a dozen popping up. And I think like any kind of quick move in a market, you got winners and then some will fall out. Uh, Many of them are operating on cash-only models. And you wouldn't have seen that happen 15 years ago because there weren't as many generic drugs. Now there are, are generic drugs. There's the tech, it's this convergence of mobile technology. People are real comfortable with what is called asynchronous care. I, I land on an app. I fill out a form that describes my condition. I send it in. A clinician reviews it, might send me a question or two. I fill that out, and then a prescription appears. And there's not a, there's not a synchronous you and the physician at the same time, it's asynchronous, which is very efficient in terms of scheduling and away you go. And you see some of these, Roe is a good example. It started out essentially as an easy way to get generic Viagra, but now they're a men's health company. And they're actually, you know, I saw them at at the health conference. They were talking about how proud they were that they did a whole bunch of vaccinations. They scheduled vaccination clinics in city. They're doing a lot on preventative health for men. So I do believe that as we have all become more comfortable with the mobile technology, there is going to be a fragmentation of the pharmacy model, and you're going to see people who can win in certain sectors. Men's health and women's health seems to be one area that is going to be a winner. I don't know how many, but there will be some.
0: So there's this model of the primary care physician where uh, they're trusted and you could tell them anything. And if you're a young woman, you might get birth control for your primary care physician. They're not going to tell your, your mother about that. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and somehow, uh, these consumer-oriented pharmacy companies, there's also doctors involved in them as well, uh, using telemedicine to prescribe, um, they uh, have, there's this idea that it's too embarrassing to ask your own primary care physician for Viagra, or it's too embarrassing to go to get an STD check. And so you're gonna go online uh, and and get this instead. Uh, and that it seems to be benefiting from, they, they seem to have chosen drugs that there might be an embarrassment factor even though the whole model of being a primary care physician with a private exam in, a, in their exam room is that you shouldn't be embarrassed uh, to talk to them. But you do have to wait until your next meeting with them and then remember to bring it up and then have that embarrassing moment right. with them. And these right. companies have, have often with their first drugs, they've buy, they, they figured out they can bypass that and, and be a preferred uh, provider. Um, so, Harry, by the way, let me just ask, I hear the words um, specialty drug. Specialty pharma company and specialty pharmacy thrown around. So, we heard right. you describe specialty drug as an on brand drug, an on patent drug, having a price point of 100 to 500 dollars, roughly something like that. Um, and then a specialty pharma company. I've heard that described as uh, a special purpose pharmaceutical company that has no R and D capacity that goes and buys. Uh, ugly stepchildren drugs from big pharma that are being under marketed and then build a specialized sales force. So it's really talking about a specialty sales force that knows just how to exactly sell that to the right kinds of prescribers and gets a lot more value out of that drug than they got uh, at a big pharma company. That was the specialty pharma model. And especially pharmacy, I see as, uh, pharmacies with, with higher skilled, uh, Um, pharmacists at them who will do things like special preparations of existing of of mainstream drugs, or maybe alternately, special extra steps of care that are required for expensive drugs. Is is that right? I I wanted to clear up some confusion around a specialty drug, a specialty pharmaceutical company and a specialty pharmacy. Does that sound right to you? Yeah,
1: I think a few words on the definition of specialty is important because it means so much to so many different people and it's used so broadly. First, we've got to separate pharmaceutical manufacturers, drug companies from pharmacies. I'm talking about pharmacies here and specialty pharmacies are just special purpose pharmacies that have geared their business model around the drugs that are called specialty drugs and specialty drugs the term specialty drugs is nothing more than a term of art it is not a term that's conferred by the fda or the state board or anything like that it's really a a term that's used that was kind of invented by health plans and insurance companies to create a class of drugs that deserve a certain amount, we're gonna create a special benefit category for these really expensive drugs. And a specialty drug is generally $5,000 a month and more is a specialty drug. But what United might call a specialty drug might not be what Cigna calls a specialty drug or Aetna calls, they're generally close, but there's, there's no hard and fast rules. Likewise, a specialty pharmacy could be a pharmacy that dispenses 100 specialty drugs, or it could be a specialty pharmacy that dispenses 10 specialty drugs, and they could be different drugs. But that's always expensive. They always involve a lot more work when it comes from reimbursement and insurance coverage and things like that. Generally, they are for serious conditions. Uh, and, and they des- the drugs deserve a lot more attention from the pharmacist to the patient in terms of counseling and education.
0: Great, so we, we have some audience questions. I will jump to those. Uh, one from Yash is, uh, do you envision AI pharmacist triage-based prescriptions without provider intervention in the future? um foreshadowing acnu use case um self-selection and self-administration uh any, any thoughts
1: uh i'm not sure i understand what acnu use case is so yash if you could uh define that acronym for me but i do see ai being used a lot more by pharmacists and by systems and health plans to comb through mountains of data to identify which patients are at risk of drug-drug interactions or dosage adjustment or things like that. Now, then it becomes, what's the role of the pharmacist? And I think the role of the pharmacist is the translator. I still believe you need a, a human-to-human interface on something as critical as your medicine. And it might be very good for the profession of pharmacy as we get away from the counting of pills and taking pills from big bottles to little bottles and get into the business of communicating with patients. There are a lot of creative models. Geisinger in Pennsylvania, the Veterans Administration have put pharmacists in the front lines paired with primary care in a consultative mode where they're not putting labels on bottles or typing anything up. Their, patient, their medication counseling, and you can save thousands and thousands of dollars and prevent you know hundreds of uh, ER visits or medication interaction problems with patients and confusion by getting the pharmacist out there. And AI is just going to be an augment
0: to that. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> we have a growing amount of knowledge tools, productivity tools, including AI and they threaten all knowledge workers. And there's a promise with this threat. The promise is, is that the knowledge worker will be able to practice at the top of his or her license, will be able to do more. Um, and the threat is that they're, they're gonna be automated out of, uh, out of uh, need for them. And I think one of the interesting stories with the pharmacist is that uh, it's less clear whether uh, pharmacists are gonna be able to practice at a higher level. Will they be allowed to by the system? Will the opening be there? Or is, or is this a candidate for if, if automation comes in and removes the pharmacist from pouring pills from a big bottle to a little bottle, Does that mean you need fewer pharmacists and the, and there isn't room for them mm-hmm. to practice at a higher level. Um, do you, do you, are pharmacists especially pressured uh, in this area, Harry, as compared to, say, doctors?
1: I, I think it's important for your audience to understand how pharmacists are paid. Uh, mm-hmm. It's fascinating that I don't think everybody realize that. In the healthcare system which is driven primarily by medicare and how medicare organizes things and billing codes and then the commercial side follows that you're either a provider or you're not and a provider means that you can bill for your time a nurse can bill for you you bill for nursing time you bill for physician time you bill for physical therapist time anybody a pharmacist from cms's perspective is not a provider a pharmacist cannot bill for their time. A pharmacist only makes money when the margin when there's margin on the drug. The pharmacist makes is paid as a result of the growth. So it's a weird quirk of the system that okay, the more I dispense out of the pharmacy, the more I make. Whether that's good for the system or not, and it's it kind of touches on the whole issue of fee-for-service, and then we could get into a conversation about value-based contracting. If we move to a model where we are paying for outcomes rather than paying for incidences, and we're paying a, a health plan to make sure a population is healthy, then the pharmacist is in the right mode to just get paid for doing what they do, keeping people adherent, making sure they're not having drugs that interact with one another and things like that. And their relationship to the drug is kind of disconnected economically. There is a, if you go to the American Pharmacists Association website, you see a lot of white papers on provider status. There are some states that are giving pharmacists provider status where they can bill for their time, but that's really only an interim step. What we really have to do is get out of the business of fee for service and get into the business of paying for a healthy population and a health plan or a provider like a Geisinger or even a VA saying, look, we're going to keep these million lives much more healthy. And these are the metrics. And we're going to use all sorts of creative ways of doing that. And we don't have to get paid for them individually. We're getting paid on a per person rate.
0: And so, also with automation and AI technologies coming in, from the perspective of the physician, I've commented in the past how there's some interesting new models for what a physician will be like if you don't necessarily need to have managed to have memorized many medical school textbooks in in order to be a physician. So, one model is 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 what's being called the Centaur, and this comes from Gary Kasparov, uh, who envisions and has created a Centaur League in chess, so you can have. Um, Humans play humans in chess, and that is the only chess that is recognized by international chess federations. Um, There's also, humans can play computers, and computers routinely beat most humans, and computers can actually play computers as well. But um, Centaur leagues, as formed by Garry Kasparov, the former world chess champion, um, are a human with their AI, I guess another human with their AI, so the AI instantly tells you what move they would make. And then the human doesn't always do that move. The human sometimes will say, "Well, I want to be more aggressive or less aggressive than that." Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, likewise, with a physician and a pharmacist, they now have their AI next to them, telling them the next thing they should do, and 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 the, and the AI's view of what of what they should. do what opinion they should have on the uncertain matters and then it's up to the actual human responsible to decide well my ai says this but i'm going to do this or whatever um the second one interestingly is the coach and i think there's an interesting opportunity here for um if you've got automation tools in the background doing things that would have taken up most of your time can you as a pharmacist be a coach you brought up you know pharmacists are they're responsible for that initial conversation but they could also do more along the lines of motivating people and getting them to actually take their meds there, there's a joke you right. probably know this about about the, the about that america's first drug problem is that people take drugs they shouldn't take but america's second drug problem is that people don't take drugs they should take um, right and and the the metric is roughly about half about half of the drugs people should take aren't taken so the pharma industry could double in size tomorrow. um, And maybe pharmacies could double in size tomorrow if people just took the drugs that they're supposed to take, but don't take.
1: Um, Right. C. Everett Koop, the um, Surgeon General about 20 or 25 years ago was famous for the phrase, the most expensive medicine is the one that isn't taken. So we, we have not solved the adherence problem at all. There are a lot of different solutions to it, packaging, reminders, apps, and things like that. But to your to your Centaur metaphor, I think that applies to pharmacy as well. There are a number of companies. I mentioned Areen. There's another one out of Israel called, I believe it's MDI. Uh, there's a company called Tabula Rasa. Uh, I probably are, am missing other ones that provide a lot of, Kind of algorithmic firepower to a pharmacist, essentially sorting out all of the things that could happen with this particular profile. Essentially says, okay, here are the things that you need to tell this patient. You figure out how to tell them. Uh, you you couple that model with a company like Aspen RX that has pharmacists working off their cell phones at home in a gig model where I'm I'm just looking at a a menu or a queue, here are patients who need counseling because a health plan has contracted with Aspen to say, okay, we have a thousand diabetics that need counseling. Start calling them. And then on your phone, you can see their entire medication history. You can get alerts from the AI algorithm saying, wait a minute, this drug, this drug. And then it's the pharmacist's job to figure out how to coach that patient, how to motivate them that a a robotic AI voice isn't going to be able to do. So there still is plenty of room for the magic and the human touch of a pharmacist here. I think we're, we're going to look at a complete change in the way we educate pharmacists and what they do, because you know that, that store
0: that you see with all of those pills behind a pharmacist, that can be automated. So um, there's an interesting story about tabula rasa, which is that if you look at the Fortune 500, they have a vision of what their sales rep is going to be. Their sales rep is going to take all of their knowledge and all of their activities and put them in a system. And that system is then going to know, you know, uh, the buyer's, um, you know, birthday and, and wedding anniversary, and that how they like to receive messages. They like they like to be called on their cell phone, but they don't like to get email. And they're going to know all of these little tips and tricks, and that they uh, they often like to. Uh, demand a discount at the end of the month, but they really will purchase if they're offered a discount at the end of the month or whatever. And all this goes into a system, and then the the outstanding salesperson becomes less less valuable and can command less of a of a price. Uh, and they the, and the then the fortune driver company with the expert system with all this information in it, they could bring in some new person who. You know, it's just, is, is 25 years old, mm-hmm. their first sales job, right. and that person now has all the tools that were available to that expert salesperson. Now let's pay them as much. Um, and mm-hmm. with, with Tabula Rasa, you know, they, uh, focus on polypharmacy. So I think the typical sick person takes over eight drugs, for example, and right. there's a, a great possibility of, of, uh, uh c- of drug, um, conflicts there. Um, and there's also, you know, just tips like, uh, you know, take this drug uh, after dinner and you will have less of a problem. Uh, and all of that knowledge of polypharmacy, which is so complex, uh, is tabula rasa is collecting that and then serving it up uh, uh, to pharmacists who are involved in the care of, of very sick patients. Uh, and and so you don't need a, a pharmacist who has 40 years of experience and is about to retire um, to, you know, to... to right. To apply that experience, you can just call on your expert system, likewise, with Hagar Raza. Um, So I'm going to, for our audience, we're we're at the top. Oh, go ahead.
1: Can can I address one of the questions in the chat? Uh, uh, And it's from WMD. I love that acronym there. Uh, I don't know if it's real or not, but that puts a smile on your face. Okay. WMD says there are 23,000 independent pharmacies and that the number of stores has grown over the past 10 years. Does that jive with my independent mom and pop number? Uh, I might be a little off there, but what I, what I want to address is I have a great respect for the independent pharmacies, big and small. It, it is a tough market. And the ones that are still out there standing, as I said, it's very Darwinian. They are really good. They have figured out how to survive in a market of declining margins, great pressure from the Walmarts, Walgreens, CBS, Rite Aid. And they're great entrepreneurs and businessmen who figured out how to kind of modify their model. And it's where most a lot of the innovation is occurring in the independent pharmacies. And there's some debate as to is the number going up or down, but it's not it's not dramatically going down. They're, they are hanging in there, and they are a potent political force. So everything that is being driven in D.C. around PBM legislation and review is driven by an organization called the National Community Pharmacists Association, NCPA which is your corner drugstore, and nobody knows how to kind of work their local representative better than your community pharmacist. So I have great respect for those folks, men and women, and I, I think they're going to be around for a long time, and you know, who knows the way the political winds will blow. Uh, and those numbers, Adam Fine probably has the definitive numbers on the number of independents in his report hope that helps.
0: That That's great. Um, so it's the top of the hour. And what we're going to do is for those of you who for work reasons can stay with us for just an hour. Now's a good juncture to go. But for those of you who want to stay, we're going to open the bar now and we're going to head on over to the bar. Uh, and this is a great time uh, for our audience to ask questions. There's three ways to ask questions. You can ask questions in the room chat. You can raise your hand to be a caller and we'll talk to you. Um, or you could send me an email at stephen at wardelladvisorsllc dot I treat the emails as uh, the the, the questioner is kept anonymous in the case of the uh, of the emails, um, and uh, I we have some we actually have some people have emailed in questions, so I will uh, I'll get to those as well. Um, uh, but for those of you who had to leave at the top of the hour, thank you. And Harry, now we we are headed over to the bar.
1: Uh, um, I'm here.
0: <laughs> I'm all in. That's great. Um, so. Harry, you and I talked in the past about something interesting that's going on with CDS, maybe with Walgreens as well. It involves, you know, they are offering primary care on site and that's often a nurse practitioner, maybe with a doctor available by telehealth. Um, right. and, but they're by, and they may or may not be utilizing their pharmacist uh, to the full extent of that pharmacist's ability to provide care right, and that pharmacist is, is 25 feet away from the nurse practitioner offering right. care in the convenience care clinic in CVS. But combined, they're also creating these, these regional automation centers that are doing some of the labor that might've happened uh, right there in, on site at the neighborhood CVS pharmacy. What's going on? Is this, is, this a new, is this the new model of care that we have all been hearing about? Um, uh, uh, you know, what, and maybe you could touch on um, Walgreens and then also Walmart, which is also claiming that it's it's going right. to be offering that that offering care, not just pharmacy right. inside of Walmart, but care is a big part of Walmart's future as well.
1: Let, let let me address that by just saying what I know that is going on, and then we'll talk about where we think it's going. Okay. So the facts are Walmart is building really substantial primary care facilities on-site beside their, or right on adjacent to uh, sharing a wall with their super centers. I toured one in Chicago. They are amazing facilities. These are not just like little minute clinics. They are 2,500, 3,000 square foot facilities that have multiple functions, dental, ultrasound, psych social, optometry, counseling, and primary care. And they are going all in on this and the pharmacy is still in the store, but it's close, but it is a completely separate kind of business within the store. But the pharmacist knows what's going on in the clinic. The clinic knows where the pharmacy is and it's it's hyper local. If this, you know, whatever the ethnicity is of that market, that store has adopted that and the clinic has adopted it. They're going really big on it. Now you see them signing deals with health plans. Uh, Walgreens is partnering with Village MD and you're starting to see Village MD clinics, which is essentially a primary care clinic next to a Walgreens. But at the same time, Walgreens is spending a lot and you can pull up, Uh, If you Google Walgreens CEO on CNBC, you'll see some good interviews with Roz Brewer, the CEO of Walgreens, talking about their investment in pharmacy automation to remove the, the, the counting and the pouring and the filling of prescriptions out of the store to free up the pharmacist. And by creating regional fulfillment centers around the country, about 20 of them uh, that are highly automated and they look like mini Amazon warehouses, only now they're filling, you know, pill bottles this big, but running around on robots. Fascinating to, to watch. But so that's what's going on today. CBS is doing similar things with automation in the stores and also big investment in primary care where it's headed and how it will change the pharmacy model, the pharmacy care model. No one's really defined that real well. In other words, if you have somebody at the counter who ha- who's on blood pressure medication, is the pharmacist going to ask them to do a blood pressure check right there at the counter or near the pharmacy, or are they going to go over to the primary care clinic to get their blood pressure checked? Likewise, you could do point 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 of uh, sale testing, you could do a quick lipid panel with just a, a skin prick, that sort of thing. You could get a blood level or a blood sugar level. You could get your blood pressure checked kind of at the pharmacy counter, or you could push it over to the clinic. I'm not sure where this is going. Uh, this is still very very early stage. If you think back 20 years ago, you didn't, wouldn't have thought of the pharmacy as being primary care. You would have thought of your primary care physician the primary care market, as you saw kind of at HLTH, how many companies that were there at HLTH that were just talking about disruptive primary care models?
0: Lots. Yeah, there, there's a, a joke in the industry that, um, that uh, you know, the physicians make a terrible small business, uh, you know, operators, uh, and also terrible technology purchasers uh, as well. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that and and the technology offered to them often hasn't been all that great and their business model hasn't supported you know going for for you know uh, clean tech automation it's supported um optimizing fee for service uh and but uh, what we've seen is is that the um you know, the sort of the nerds which is the, the the tech uh entrepreneurs um have found you know for the last. Uh, 15 years or so, we've had a nearly zero interest rate environment. It was very easy for, uh, you know, a a, a smooth-talking, you know, uh, techies to raise a lot of money. Uh, And then they saw this issue of uh, that um, historically, uh, physicians both practiced medicine and ran their own small business practice as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and And technologists said, we can do better. You know, why is there no beloved national brand of, of primary care practice, uh, right. people know in advance what they're getting and, and feel comfortable with it. Well, maybe it's time for a technologist to raise, you know, to raise a billion dollars and go build that, um, and treat physicians as right. a sort of a, uh, a, a non-essential intermediate level employee in that enterprise. Um, uh, and, uh and, and they're doing it um, in all sorts of ways, including with alternate care models that are virtual first, or even um, you know, maybe asynchronous text-based or something. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, very interesting. And it's it's you know as a physician, um, it's tough to compete against that. It's often easy to get hired to be part of that enterprise as well. They 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 love hiring uh, you know flexible doctors uh, to be part of their system. Um, so. question from the audience, Um, the AMA is forecasting a shortage of 139,000 primary care physicians, wow. Um, Independent pharmacies are uniquely positioned to meet some of this access to care gap. How does moving the filing of prescriptions, the filling of prescriptions out of the local pharmacy to a digital mail order supplier help solve this crisis? Um, Maybe that is a somewhat tongue in cheek question, I think uh but uh, what what do you think is going on it, 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 a, a way of rephrasing that might be could pharmacists who are there locally help help um you know if you keep people going into pharmacies and filling their prescriptions at pharmacies uh the pharmacists could help with this um with this care gap what, what what do you think
1: I do believe that pharmacists can help with the care gap I I particularly with chronic meds, diabetes, cholesterol, hypertension. There are a lot of studies that show that pharmacists kind of in that primary care model can do a lot of screening, uh, a lot of medication adherence work. At one level, you've got to figure out, okay, how are we going to pay them for that time? That takes time. Think about anybody on this and who's listening in, when you're at the prescription counter, how much time does that pharmacist have to step out and talk to somebody about their blood pressure okay so one we've got to create time could do that with robotics then we've got to figure out okay now are you going to pay them for that time and this kind of gets back to outcomes based contracting and value-based contracting if the insurance company that's behind all of this says yeah we need to find who are the hypertensives that are not taking their medicine and we're gonna we're gonna pay the pharmacist to do that we we've got something going there now the person started the question with the shortage of physicians a looming shortage of physicians there is a similar problem in pharmacy okay this year Brand new pharmacists graduating out of the 140 pharmacy schools around the United States or 140 accredited schools of pharmacy in the United States, they will graduate less than a little less than 9000 newly minted pharmacists that is down from a high of about 14,000 four or five years ago, there is not as many people going into pharmacy school. And it's any there have there's no scientific study as to why that is. There's just a lot of anecdote and a lot of just kind of urban lore around it. And the the point it what people believe is that they're looking at pharmacists and retail, seeing how hard they work, and they're hearing that this is a really hard job. And okay. I'm going to become a physical therapist, or I'm going to become a dentist, or I'm going to pick a different healthcare profession if I want to get into healthcare. And I'm just, there's at the margin, more students are picking a different path than pharmacy because they just don't perceive it as being a, they don't have a perception of the pharmacist being kind of in control of their own career. Despite the fact that pharmacists are always rated high on the most trusted profession. If you, you know, the annual survey of most trusted professions, the number one always wins is nurses. And then the physician and the pharmacists are kind of in a running gun battle for the number two spot for the most trusted professions uh, in the United
0: States. Hopefully we can hold that spot. So another question, Can a digital pharmacy replace the value of the human interaction between a patient and a pharmacist? Um, Does that sound? The
1: the snarky answer is it depends on the age of the person at the other end of the phone, right? Uh, So is there a generation of people who are really comfortable with asynchronous care and dealing with chatbots and mobile phones, and they'll be just fine. The market is so big. Like I said, you know, I think two thirds of Americans are on some prescription drug. So uh, there, there's going to be a cohort that needs to talk to people. I used to run the call center at CVS Caremark, and we took millions of call, million calls a week. And listening to those calls, you know, people need help figuring out their their medicine and there will be a long tail to those people who will need that but you know we're growing generations of folks who are more comfortable with mobile who can navigate all of that and it's up to the entrepreneurs to figure out how they present that data to to patients there clearly is is a niche work. good rx is a good example of getting a discount card on your phone and you can plug in your drug and see what the prices are and off off you go without talking to anybody
0: so um i'll go back to a question from me um you know maybe eight years ago or so walmart shocked everybody by offering these incredibly low you know fixed uh one price fits all price for generic drugs um and they there was an interesting angle there which was that for their particular audience just getting in their minds that they can get their generic drugs filled cheap at walmart got people going into Walmart more often. Obviously, once you walk yep. into Walmart, you're probably walking out with 50 bucks or 100 bucks or, or more worth of other things you need in your life. And so they, they, that was a might have even been a lost leader for them that you wouldn't expect others to necessarily be able to follow. Um, but then uh, along came, comes Amazon years later doing something similar. Um, uh, and even Mark Cuban gets into the act. I don't quite understand right. what he's doing, but he's making waves. Um, uh, and Optum even uh, seemingly possibly getting into the act. What is going, and, and I've heard this called a cash-like option. Um, what what right. is going on here? Um, uh, and I, I assume that therefore the $8 prescription from Walmart, if that's cash, that implies that you're not getting reimbursed by your health plan for that because it's it's so low, maybe it falls into a different category. But what is going on with these? And are, are these, um, uh, you know, uh are these gonna sort of winning share and and gonna and putting pressure on on other pharmacies
1: i think they are winning share uh, i'll give you a, a metaphor given to me by i'll give a shout out to a, a young pharmacist by the name of kyle mccormick he runs a cash-only pharmacy in western pennsylvania called blueberry pharmacy and all of these prescriptions, even the really cheap ones, are generally covered by insurance. But they might your copay might be twenty bucks, uh, but the prescription itself is only five. So it's like, wait a minute, why am I paying twenty dollars when I could get it? And he just kind of threw that whole model out the window and said, look, we're just going all cash with a simple markup, and it's a membership model. You pay us pharmacy a small membership, and away you go. And the point he makes, and the point a lot of people are making, going back to that six billion number all of those prescriptions where billions and billions of them are less than $30. It's like, why, why should this be an insurable event? And Kyle makes the point, think about car insurance. You buy car insurance for a catastrophe, that if you kind of run into a light pole, God forbid, you don't get hit but hurt. But you, you insure your car for the big, bad event. You don't insure, you don't expect your windshield washer fluid to be covered on your car insurance. And quite frankly, no one ever covers their tires on, on car insurance. And we have the same kind of transition point going on in the insurance industry where the PBM industry, where people are looking at these low cost prescriptions and more access points to say, wait a minute, you know, if I get a specialty med, yeah, I want insurance for $60,000 a year. But these little things, why go through the hassle? And again, the market's big enough that there can be some experimentation. There are about 30 or 40 pharmacies around the country who have now said, we don't take cash, we don't take um, insurance cards. We are all cash, not just some cash. We are all cash. We're not taking any insurance cards. And if you have a drug that is expensive enough, we'll show you where to, to get them. But the majority of your meds can be covered right here. In paid in cash, real simple, and we'll give you a great service. Then the pharmacist can start charging for that service in a membership model, the Amazon model. It's, it's just five bucks. They're not getting a lot of, uh, counseling at blueberry pharmacy. They got a lot of counseling from the membership and then their, their drugs are pretty cheap. So yeah, I, it's something to watch.
0: It, it, it's interesting because if you're a pharmacy and you literally your part of your value proposition is is that we are cash only, um, then you don't have pharmacists w- working on reimbursement with payers, uh, which is uh, and you know it, a whole uh, lot of we,
1: overhead goes away. A you, lot you might, of
0: overhead goes away. You might have some happy pharmacists <laughs> and. <laughs> And uh, that that time isn't free. That's a, a ma- that can be a major value destroyer uh, to be doing that. So let's see. We have another question from from Yash. Uh, what services, partnerships, or tools are must-haves for a digital pharmacy? Hmm. By digital pharmacy, I guess here I, I would mean yeah. a farm. Pharma- this sounds like a mail-order pharmacy, but maybe it has uh, a a front a front door to patients that's very digital um uh for example and maybe it doesn't even need a pharmacy because it can partner with a true farm a true prior mail order pharmacy It's just getting the customers uh maybe it's sourcing its own customers has its own physicians and um it's and uh then it um uh, it, it can either have its own pharmacy or it can simply send that yeah. to a very, to a highly cost efficient, pre-existing mail order pharmacy. Maybe I'm not, I'm not sure what digital pharmacy means here. I'm trying to imagine well, that.
1: Let, let me take a crack at it. Uh, Yash P, uh, I would just break digital pharmacies into two categories, a digital pharmacy that is therapy specific, women's health, men's health, other things, uh, and in that model, what are the tools that are must-haves? They need to have a clinical focus, probably clinicians on staff who can prescribe, okay? So you call and you get a, a nurse practitioner or your physician assistant or a physician who's reviewing your, your chart and prescribing because you're calling for a men's health problem a women's health problem. There's a, a couple different pharmacies out there for uh, gastrointestinal disorders and things like that the other category of digital pharmacies is just cost generics and ease ease of ease of access and there's no clinical overlay so amazon's five dollar all you can eat generic buffet okay you're not gonna get it it's it's any one of a couple hundred generic drugs and it's all about the price and it's all about convenience Mark Cuban the same way. There's there's not a lot of clinical counseling there. It's all about the price and access, and just ease ease of getting the drug. So in in that category, the miss, the must haves are low operating cost, robotics, uh, you know, a a marketing tool that drives lots of patients. That how do you get lots of eyeballs to drive a lot of volume to that central pharmacy that's pounding those things out. Amazon's got it. They just kind of hang on on Amazon prime and you'll just see more and more ads on, on every one of your Amazon
0: packages coming in or something. That's great. Um, so, um, so I I'll put out a last call, uh, for any questions. We'll see if we have any more uh, questions come in. Um, and or volunteer to be a caller. Um, and I think that's that's it. Uh, Harry, any, any concluding thoughts on where the pharmacy um, industry is going, and the poor independent pharmacists, and whether they're going to survive?
1: I I think it is a it's an exciting time for pharmacy. It's an exciting time for medicine because you know at it you know if you look upstream of all of this is drug discovery. And drug discovery is in an exciting stage due to all of the advances in genetic detection and genomics. So the pipeline is filled with really exciting stuff coming down. Uh, down at where the rubber eats the road in the market, you're just seeing a lot of innovation in the business model as a result of the changing natures of drugs and the fact that there's so much technology at play now. So there's a lot of room for entrepreneurial ideas in this market. Uh, there's a lot of room for improvement because we haven't figured out how to keep people on their meds and get good outcomes. So we, we have a long way to go uh, and uh, a short time to get there, as uh, one famous country western singer said, because we, we've got a lot of people getting old who are not in good shape and we need to do a better job of keeping them on their meds. And thank you to everybody who hung in there and uh, participated
0: in this. This was fun. Thanks, Steve. That's great. Thank you. Um, So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk. Uh, I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guest, Harry Travis, who is the president of the Travis Group. Um, You'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, where my handle is Stephen Wardell. Um, to get notice of upcoming investor talks sign up for our mailchimp list you can also subscribe to our podcast on apple google and spotify see you next time uh, for who are the consolidators um, looking at which companies are in the consolidation game for digital health companies and what's going on in their world Um, with matthew holt matthew holt uh, is the president of smack health and the founder of health 2.0 Um, He'll be on Wednesday, March 15th at 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, And uh, and a reminder for our audience in Boston uh, that we have a drinks night coming up on Thursday, March 16th from 5.30 to 8.30 at Pagu Market. Um, uh, Thanks very much, and I'll see you next time. And uh, we're signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye.